lectionary gives us a fabulous piece of scripture this morning from the 25th chapter of Matthew. It starts with verse 31, and this is a story about the judgment, and it's pretty specific about the grounds upon which God will decide the quality of our lives. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at the right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you something? And when was it when we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, you are members of my family. You did it to me. Then he will say to those at the left hand, You that are accursed, Depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hunger, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that I, that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of God. Well, it's great to be back here. Chevy Chase is the congregation I consider my home congregation, although I am a prodigal son because I've my consulting work keeps me on the road oftentimes on weekends because church folks meet on weekends. Uh, but this is a great congregation, and it's a privilege to be standing here and preaching this morning. Jesus had a number of personality traits that defined him, core personality traits. And among the most prominent, I think, was gratitude. As we read through the Gospels, I can't think of a single time when Jesus complained about the quality or nature of his life. He welcomed with gratitude everything that life offered to him. True, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked God to take away the cup of death, but it wasn't a complaint so much as it was a request And he went ahead and did what he needed to do once God said, this is what you need to do. Jesus definitely got irritated with people, but irritation and complaining are not exactly the same thing. If I was still preaching weekly, I might unpack that one at a future date. I don't preach regularly, so I won't. But 
Jesus, his failure to gripe or to grouse or to grumble about his life is pretty amazing because from where I sit, he had grounds to do some major league complaining. After all, God expected him to change the world with a ragtag team of doubting Thomases, marginalized Marys, and second-guessing Peters. His advance man wore camel hair and ate honey and locust. Several times Jesus walked in on on, uh, leadership discussions among his core leadership team where they were debating who was going to sit where in heaven. In his moment of need, all of these brave colleagues in ministry headed for the hills. And yet, despite his unpredictable band of disciples, Jesus didn't complain about his staff the way I sometimes did when I was a head of staff. God expected Jesus to challenge one of the most powerful empires in the history of the world and a brutal local despot named Herod, while at the same time fending off some annoying, nitpicking religious leaders. And all of this, even though he was born into a family that possessed few material resources, he was never quite sure where the next meal was coming from as an adult, and he knew that he was going to die young, very young. And yet we never heard him whine about life and his lot in life. On the contrary, Jesus told people what a blessing it was to even have a few years on this good earth. As they walked from town to town to town, I can imagine Jesus instructing his disciples to sing the psalms that are psalms of praise. And at night, I can imagine him saying, Thank you, God, I can't believe you have given me the gift of this day and that you've chosen me for this work. Fueled by his gratitude to God, Jesus was unrelentingly effective in ministry, seeing possibilities where others saw impossibilities, remaining hopeful when others despaired, and believing in the possibility of justice in the face of injustice. I've heard it said that there are two types of people in the world, optimists and pessimists, the half-full and the half-empty crowds. I think a much more basic breakdown of the human family is grateful and ungrateful. Both optimists and pessimists can be happy, especially when their worldviews are vindicated by events. But among the grateful and the ungrateful, only the grateful are happy. Even in the midst of hardship, the grateful give thanks for what they have. Remember some of those moving testimonies that we heard from people in places like New Orleans and New Jersey and New York when those awful hurricanes moved through those places. Those grateful voices are the ones who are rebuilding their communities. The ungrateful, in contrast, obsessively catalog how pitiful their life is and how much they are victimized. When I arrived at Western Presbyterian Church in 1983, there were about 40 active members there. Of course, the pastoral nominating committee told me there were more than 100. That's another story. 
Ed White was one of the people that encouraged me to go to Weston, and I'll always be grateful for that. He was the press care exec at the time. But those 40 were all that God needed to do what God wanted to do at that church. The faithful 40 were a force to be reckoned with, first and foremost, because they were one of the most grateful collections of people I have ever met in my life. Like Jesus, it would have been easy for them to count their, their problems. They had them, and they had them in abundance. But like Jesus, they chose to count their blessings. These old-timers felt privileged to serve God at Western Church, even though the congregation had declined from 600 members in the 1950s to 60 members in the 1980s. They had a building that had the same basic uh, infrastructure as it did when it was built in 1930. They were governed by a presbytery that at several times had given them indications that they might close them down. They were located in a neighborhood that was changing from residential to offices and classrooms. The 40 had watched their close friends and their fellow church members abandon Western to join suburban churches, mostly in northern Virginia. They listened to their neighbors tell them that they were absolutely crazy to drive down into D.C., which those suburbanites considered to be a dangerous place. They watched other congregations, particularly those in their suburban neighborhoods, growing while Western continued to decline. Things got so bad, they finally had to shut down their Sunday school and nursery because they had no kids, no babies. And yet, through it all, amazingly to me, they remained grateful for the opportunity to serve God in that particular place. From grateful hearts, they gave generously of time and money. Once I recognized and understood the depth of their gratitude that they brought to life and ministry, I realized Western was going to survive. It just There was no question in my mind. Such gratitude can, in fact, move mountains and revitalize the congregation. So to potential members, I began to market their gratitude like it was the greatest product on earth because it is. I pointed pointed out to the younger people who were coming, particularly college students from GW, that they needed to pay attention to the gracious, generous, and grateful approach that these old-timers brought to life. And I suggested to the young people that they could build lives on those characteristics of gratitude and generosity and graciousness. And many of them have. They're now in their 40s. And I know them, and they have. Among those faithful 40, there were Republicans and Democrats. There were optimists and pessimists. There were well and not so well-educated people. But they all possessed a common denominator. They felt blessed to be a part of that ministry blessed to live life in this lush garden of Eden called Earth, blessed to wake up each morning with the opportunity to serve and praise God. The members at Western taught me many things, but no learning was more important than the importance of gratitude in life. For like those faithful 40, I have come to believe 
that no matter what problems we face, no matter what things we suffer, we are blessed to serve God wherever we are, blessed to be surrounded by people like us who are searching for what God would have them do with their lives. I'm not saying we don't have a right or at times a responsibility to complain. Constructive criticism is a catalyst for social and personal change. Indeed, Scripture contains some characters who are world-class five-star complainers, the prophets and Job, Abraham, and Moses, to mention a few. They all complained. Jesus also critiqued the religions of his day and social injustices of his day, but his criticism flowed from a grateful heart. When complaining morphs from a complaint about a specific problem to a worldview, to a mindset, then one ends up in a spiritual desert. As a nation, frankly, we have become a nation of ungrateful whiners. I hesitate to turn on the television anymore because I'm certain to hear someone whining about this or that. And make no mistake about it, there's as much whining on the left as on the right, on MSNBC, as there is on Fox News. Where is the gratitude in this country that inculcated the lives of the founders of this great nation? Where is the spirit of thankfulness that we see on display in the lives of the pilgrims on that first Thanksgiving? You know where we see that spirit in this country today? With immigrants. With immigrants. They, like the early immigrants called pilgrims, express gratitude regularly. Immigrants are here for a reason. Even as they work two or three less than fulfilling, low-paying jobs to make ends meet, they know how good we all have it. They celebrate the free speech they didn't possess in the lands from whence they came. The opportunities their children have here that they wouldn't have had back there. Our ethic of religious tolerance, the freedom that women have to develop and use their gifts in this country. On the whole, immigrants to this country are a profoundly grateful group of people. One more reason why we need to have sound immigration policies. <clears throat> there is far more about getting old that is good than bad. And I've decided this is one of my major messages for the rest of my years on earth. Because growing up, I was like, I don't want to get old. Well, I'm old. you know, And so it's actually pretty good. Yes, we lose some of our physical capabilities, we start losing precious friends and families to death, and that part of it really stinks. And we can't remember anyone's name. I know who you are, but I have no idea what your name is. I mean, I just faked that part of it. But the positives of getting old far outweigh the negatives. And one advantage of being older is the ever-deepening appreciation that we develop for core values. As we journey through life, 
there is a sifting and winnowing process at work that separates the wheat from the chaff. Things that we thought were really important when we were 20 or 30 or even 50 are replaced by things that are really important. After all the sifting and winnowing is done, nothing is left but a few core values. At age 67, I believe an indispensable core value is gratitude. In my experience, people who are grateful are happier, they live longer, and they get more out of life. They build healthier families, careers, congregations, companies, and nations. They consistently make better choices than those who do not understand how blessed we all are. As a consultant, one of the focal points of my attention is the culture of the particular congregation that I'm working with. Is it a healthy culture or an unhealthy culture? Do people enjoy being here or do they whine about being here? And one of the things I love about this congregation that I discovered when I was working with you in the planning capacity is that this is a healthy culture at CCPC. I think most of the people here understand and appreciate this ministry for what it is, a blessing. A blessing to them, a blessing to this neighborhood, a blessing to this city. CCPC, like every congregation, will have problems. It's going to have problems with money, with programs, with this, with that. That just That's life. But as long as people here see this congregation for what it is, a joyful place to worship and serve God, this place is going to be great. And it is great. So this week, and in the weeks and years beyond, let us live as grateful people and as grateful individuals. Let us be known as people who say thank you when everyone else is complaining. Who say, I feel blessed when everybody else is saying that they're cursed. There's a great old hymn that the old-timers at Western used to sing, and it starts out, count your every blessing, count them one by one. I encourage each and every one of us this Thursday to do a simple ritual. Count your blessings one by one. Do a simple ritual. It's a profound ritual that my wife introduced to me many years ago at our dinner table. And that is every person has to go around and say something for which they're grateful. When that finishes, we're all grateful. For gratitude, for gratitude for like love, forgiveness, and other core values, gratitude is a contagious thing. And once we start naming that for which we're grateful, we become grateful. As we say a grateful world word, others are pulled into the circle of God's grateful family. Let us pray. Good and generous God, there are lots of things we bring to you in prayer. Sometimes our prayers are eloquent. Other times they're slapped together hastily. This morning we say but one thing to you. 
probably the most important thing we could ever say to you. Thank you. Amen.